My name is Dr. Nate Shannock. And my name is Merrick Egber. This is the official podcast of the Ellis for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name, and Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. But we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. But I'm not on the podcast. I'm a member of our growing research team. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling in the gaps of each department like Lou. I'm also autistic. This is our 29th episode of the podcast, Brothers and Sisters, featuring Samantha Ells with Sam Sid Stick Together and Jesse and Paul Morris, the latter of whom sits our, on our advisory board. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment, where we posit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Also, check our show notes for websites, resources, and other groovy things we would like to have on the written record for all of you for autism fans. So we're going to start with some news and updates about the foundation. Tune into episode 28 to listen to our interviews with our rec coordinator, Greg Connors, and our advisory board member, Adam Jones. They talk about being active, working with your passion, the importance of recreational activities, and some of our important initiatives surrounding the game of golf. Make sure to also listen to the rest of the program to get an idea of what we were doing as a foundation during that time. Learn something new about the autism community for our Today in the World of Autism segment. This month, we are going to start to promote the Rides Far for Autism Research Campaign by the Autism Science Foundation. We have had ties with ASF before due to their support for Sam Sid Stick Together, and one of our advisory board members, Paul Morris, being such an instrumental figure in the campaign itself. Rise Far takes place in a few major cities, and it's basically a walkathon to raise money for further research into autism. Because of their important mission, I decided to write an article of answers provided by the ASF community manager that ties everything together. Now, when I was younger, it was easier to find data on marriages that didn't work. It can also be easier to find the marriage that doesn't work if the child has a disability, which is very unfortunate. In my family, though, the marriage has worked, and on the 16th of this month, my parents celebrated their 41st anniversary being married to one another. My mother loves French food, so we all went over to Pesce in downtown West Palm Beach to celebrate. And I gave my parents a sea of possibilities, B-steam heart, with two turtles on the sand representing them. Not saying that... Uh, Anything about it is uh, is to imply that they are slow or that they are uh, pretty much just sticking to the same thing or anything like that, but that they are pure of heart and they have a lot of uh, protective armor on them because they are uh, <clears throat> they they are very very bonded together. Okay, so um, also, I, I know a very strange description to be using. I probably should have just stopped there. <laughs> I think you navigated the seas pretty smoothly there, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, that definitely uh, navigated there pretty much. And uh, also to represent another new milestone in my uh, 
family on Thursday, August 25th, my father turned 67 years old. And what I like to ask my co-host is, because I don't believe I've ever revealed my age on this podcast, Nate, how old do you think I am? Oh, I'm going to have to say 29. Well, I am actually uh, 14 years of age. I just have a very deep voice for being 14 years of age. <laughs> oh, boy. I knew you were a, a boy genius. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm trying to think about any media boy geniuses that I can think of right now. And all I can think about is that cartoon character from the late 90s, uh, Dexter from Dexter's Laboratory. And I can't <laughs> even do his voice. It just raving and ranting about his uh, sister, I believe bigger sister, Dee Dee, <laughs> and how she does and how she ruins things and everything. And he's just like, you don't appreciate my inventions. But yeah, <laughs> anyone who actually uh, grew up in with that cartoon would know what I'm talking about. Um, so are you actually going to reveal the age or was this... Uh... Was this just a tease for the listeners? Well, I actually should not tease the listeners right now because we don't exactly have the infrastructure to afford the tagline for the program. So I'm not exactly <laughs> going to have like, coming soon, you will hear Merrick's real age. No, instead, <laughs> I'm just going to reveal it right now. I am... Uh, actually, uh, 36 years of age. So I, I am quite, uh, a, a, quite a wise individual, if I do may say so myself. But I have the uh, actual added bonus of also being youthful. That's right. Talent and good looks. Yeah. And a big partier. Uh, that's actually a joke. Anyways, um, yeah, so uh, my father, yeah, as I said, my father, he turned 67 years old, and I can only imagine being that age myself. I can only imagine us doing this when we're in our late 60s. Maybe uh, by then our jokes will be a little bit better. By then we'll have to do a few anniversary uh, specials. Your dad's jokes are hilarious. And on that note, you know, I would uh, like to wish Mitchell uh, a happy pending birthday and also very happy anniversary to your parents, Mitchell and Debbie. Uh, they are awesome people. And I hope that they hear this message. I hope that they're tuning into our broadcast here. <laughs> yeah. We'll just have to get some call letters up there so uh, people can recognize us more easily. <laughs> um, I'm not, I don't even know, A-U-T-I-M, A-U-T-I-S-M, or W-A-U-T-I-S-M. Yeah, I can see that. So uh, back to the updates and uh, news, uh, what's going on at the foundation. Earlier this month, our two charter schools, TLC, the Learning Center, which educates kids from Freedom Middle School, and TLA, the Learning Academy, which educates kids from high school, reopened for a new semester of students. T 
TLC and TLA are tuition-free public charter schools that work with children who have autism for whatever it may be that they would be striving for. Both schools are available on our Center of Excellence campus, and the links to both will be on our notes. Then we also have the time to embrace the fall season with a new selection of sports and arts programs, which all started the week of August the 22nd. Such familiar programs like dance, golf, tennis, and yoga will continue. We have also added a fitness curriculum as part of our Game On initiative, which seeks to incorporate our tested and true principles of Game On Golf and Tennis to Fitness too. Make sure to keep yourself updated with our rec flyer that we have on our website, which advertises any new curriculums we have. Further details will be on our program. And lastly, we have gotten a total of 10 unique nominations for our Autism Spectrum Award. Nominees include Jesse Horn from Buffalo City, Wisconsin, Katie Santoro from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Thomas Island from Santa Clarita, California, Vincent Pendolini from Palm City, Florida, Dr. Carrie Magro from Hoboken, New Jersey, Gayasi Burks-Abbott from Bedford, Massachusetts, Martin Slingstad from San Jose, California, Mike DeMura from Orlando, Florida, Tim Goldstein from Littleton, Colorado, and uh, Nate Shinnock from, uh, no, I'm sorry, I was reading the wrong thing. And Zachary Schmidt oh. from Conway, South Carolina. Thanks to all who have been nominated. You can see all of them on our website. Okay. So this is the moment you all have been waiting for. Today in the world of autism. So I have my co-host, Dr. Nate Shinnock, and his fantastic research-oriented story. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have some scintillating stories for you today. First of all, a couple research-minded stories, and I'd like to start off by presenting research from the Del Monte Institute for Neuroscience at the University of Rochester. Is this appropriate to tell me this before I've had dinner? I mean, the Del Monte Institute, I, I thought that they made uh, canned fruit. I thought that they made like peaches and cherries and all that. And now well, you're telling me that they're also involved in neuroscience. They, What's going on here? They've graduated from mass fruit production to mass distribution of neuroscience research. That is absolutely fantastic to hear. Do go on, please. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. You might miss your delicious canned peaches, but... They're, they're working towards a good, good cause here still. So research from apparently not the one and only Del Monte Institute, <laughs> um, they've discovered that adolescents with autism spectrum disorder have difficulties with effectively processing body movements and body language. And this is especially true when they are distracted by something else. And we know that this ability has important implications for nonverbal communication and that that plays a pivotal role in forming social bonds with others. So in this well-designed study, which was published in the journal Molecular Autism, 
The researchers used EEG technology to record brain activity response while children both with ASD and without ASD watched videos of moving dots that were arranged to look like a person. In these videos, the dots moved in a manner to represent various movements like running, kicking, and jumping, and in a variety of different motions. Difficulties with this task have previously been theorized as a biomarker for ASD in early childhood. In fact, this was one of the tasks that we researched in our, um, in our research collaboration with the Seaver Autism Center of Mount Sinai, New York. It was one of the tasks that we used to assess progress as a result of the spring into action, early intervention that we were delivering. Anyways, that, that was certainly a good time. But back to the research here. So participants, they were asked to either focus on determining whether the dots moved like a person or not. So if the dots were actually depicting real motion or in a different variation, they were asked to focus on the color of the dot arrangements. And researchers found that only children with autism showed atypical activation patterns when focusing on the dot color rather than the movement of dots. So this showed that their brains process body motion with less automaticity than neurotypical individuals. And this was especially true when they focused on an alternative aspect of the person. So for neurotypical individuals, they still showed typical brain response to the motion of dots, even when the task was to identify the color uh, or to focus on the color of the dots. So they still showed the typical brain activation, even when there was a distracting task. But individuals with autism, they did not show typical activations when they had to focus on the color of the dots. So when there was something uh, distracting them or inhibiting their focus. So Merrick, from a neuroscience perspective, I felt that this finding suggests the possibility of, of a broader issue with mirror neurons, which are cells in our brains that light up when we watch a person experiencing something like eating a sandwich, shooting a basketball, or even feeling sadness. And mirror neurons have been shown to be very important for skills like theory of mind and, you know, really understanding another person's thoughts and feelings. So I wanted to, to ask you, what are your thoughts on the author's suggestions that multitasking in social contexts may be especially difficult for individuals with ASD? Well, part of it is that it, it makes me think a little bit of how I would say from a very early age, I would consider myself to having been born without the same instruction manual that people without autism um, have. And, you know, everything is kept in a tight order, in a tight place, 
and that kind of thing. But if you have no instruction manual and you grow up without one, then it just becomes a little bit more challenging and difficult to assemble everything in the same way that someone without autism can probably do so. I also think uh, it's also a little bit keyed into the hyper-focus component where someone can uh, focus on something for a wide amount of time. But the other thing that one can think about regarding hyper-focus is that that also makes it very difficult to multitask overall when you're focusing on something, especially, and when you talk about what they, what the participants were focusing on, you're talking about the uh, more, I guess, abstract image of a dot that moves like a person or the visual uh, image where there's no abstraction. You're not really considering to oneself what the dots are supposed to turn into, but rather uh, what is already there visually and what already visually stimulates. So um, <clears throat> if you ask someone, you know, maybe ask someone with ASD, okay, so it's about if, if these like cones or whatever, if they look like a trapeze, or if you ask someone, um, you know, about the color of the cones and, you know, more visually centric uh, perspectives. Now, one thing that actually would be very, very interesting is to use that research and to find out if there is ever a difference between people who are maybe more severely affected by autism, how they perceive clouds, and even how they perceive like inkblot tests, hmm. because that also involves, you know, constructing things abstractly in, in the mind instead of focusing on what's already there visually. And what's already there visually, of course, is going to maybe be a little bit more concrete with people who are maybe more used to visually learning than they are of trying to put everything together mentally. So I think that it's not just multitasking is affected by uh, certain symptoms. It's also the question as to how we all learn. Um, I know many, many people who are my peers, and I kind of feel the same way too, are really, really into, you know, cartoons, are really into Disney, anime, anything that it that visually pops out at you. And so I, I've been very, very focused a lot more on deciphering the visual model and the visual archetype when it comes to how we identify individuals with ASD. And in a way, I kind of think that the color of the dot arrangements feels a little bit more like a social story in, um, in a little bit of action 
and the dots that move like a person, you may need a little bit more of a drawing in because that's less of a social story, but you will need a social story to describe why the dots move or why they look like a person. So I hope that that was uh, pretty useful in the discussion because, you know, to, to me, it, it's, it's the simple, you don't, you don't even have to have the dots move like a person, just show someone a picture of a, of a cloud. And, you know, is it, would someone with autism have a different interpretation that's maybe more rooted in the visual logic than it is in the abstract thought of how we visualize clouds in the atmosphere? I agree. You can call, with you. Yeah. You can call it from there, you can call it Merrick's uh, cloud experiment. Make me a PhD, <laughs> call me Dr. Merrick and have a cloud experiment happen. And I can try to do studies and, you know, uh, maybe uh, my co-host over here can do studies too. And we can just uh, all look at clouds on a, on a nice day and, you know, ask people, well, what do you think this looks like? What do you think that looks like? You know, uh, not sure uh, if I can ask someone to, to give me funding for research into, into clouds and the shapes of clouds for uh, a study like this. I might have to introduce you for the next episode as Sigmund Egbert. <laughs> yeah, I can only uh, imagine that. <laughs> you know, what exactly does this tell you about your childhood? And the person's like, I already, I'm already, I'm two years old. I already am in childhood. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I would, it would be interesting to think about inkblot tests and clouds and how one interprets uh, a visual image. Because you could say someone could be like, I have autism, I see a cloud, it just looks like a cloud. And someone without could say, oh, the cloud looks like a princess. You know, it, it's, yeah. it's really, it's this interesting field of neurodiversity as to how you interpret things. Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent point you made. I want to clarify just two things from the article. The first is that this study was done on adolescents. So typically these types of tasks are more so used for, for infants and toddlers, you know, as a, a screening tool for autism or a, an objective measure to be able to track the progress of interventions. But it would, it would be advantageous, you know, to include some non-social stimuli as well, um, kind of like control stimuli and just check and make sure, like you're saying, Merrick, that, you know, it's, they, they could have done a better job checking to see if it is an issue of just hyper-focusing on the task that's given to them, whatever it, it is to focus on, whether it's uh, like you were saying, the shape of the cloud or the color of the cloud um, versus an actual issue with social specific processing. Um, but um, still, I think there's some, there's some value to the study 
in that you know they did have a, a neurotypical condition and there was a, a pretty well explained difference in how the activation patterns were uh, between those two those two groups so just gives us uh, in the clinical world hopefully a little bit more insight as to you know that when it comes to teaching social skills, right? We might have to, to draw particular attention um, or, or, you know, help clients uh, tell it, instructing them to focus on, try to focus on certain things, um, certain expressions or, or body language in the other person, because it, it might, it, it's likely the case that it's not as automatic of a process in autism. Yeah, I think that, you know, all of us absorb something at some root level there. And it's really about figuring out what that root level is. And if you want to teach someone a certain thing or in a certain way, you go from that root level to figuring out how to replace it with something else, but not like, an, like just a complete displacement, but rather sort of like, uh, what is it, scaffolding that's, uh, or, you know, step laddering, where, you know, you go to it step by step, but, you know, you figure out, okay, so of course they're going to uh, concentrate on the color because the color is what's there. The color is what you see. The color is, you know, you can basically, you can close your eyes and maybe you can still, if you have a mind's eye, you can still see the color. So, so basically, it's like, how, how can you redirect visual stimuli to, <clears throat> to direct those spots that matter to what the person wants to teach in a way that, that, it's, that the person hyper-focuses on what you want being taught rather than only absorbing this trace of visual stimuli and just thinking that, you know, that, that it's the most impossible thing in the world. And I don't believe that it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really well said. Well, I think I'll move on here to research story number two. And so this one is more uh, related to um, access to intervention programs in the field, as opposed to a specific finding through an experimental manipulation. And so despite a federal mandate requiring access to early intervention programs or EIPs for children with disabilities, research from Rutgers University which was published in JAMA Psychology, has highlighted a concerning statistic on this matter. In the US, access to EIPs for young children is mandated by law as part of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. However, the extent to which children with autism participate in early intervention programs had not previously been measured. Fewer than half of children with ASD 
across four New Jersey counties received services prior to 36 months of age, according to this research. Again, fewer than half of children with ASD across four New Jersey counties received services prior to 36 months of age. To gather this research, Dr. Josephine Shinoda and the team at Rutgers University analyzed data from 2006 to 2016 that was collected by the New Jersey Autism Study, which is a monitoring system developed and maintained by Rutgers University. And they found that 4,050 children with ASD in these counties, um, I'm sorry, they found that of 4,050 children with ASD in these counties, only 1,887, roughly 47% had received EIP services. The researchers found that lower rates of access were also, um, they also occurred in areas with lower socioeconomic resources. And I wanna make the point, this was a, a very important study that was published JAMA Psychology is obviously a, a well-known and impactful journal, so I'm happy that it, it made it to such a, a meaningful journal. And I wanna say that even though this study took place in just four counties in New Jersey, it should serve as a warning signal to the entire country that there are a lot of children with autism that are still falling through the cracks in some way and are not gaining access to many of the evidence-based early intervention programs that we now have available. So we can conduct research all day and I can talk about early intervention programs on the podcast um, you know, every week, but bottom line is if this type of care is not accessible to families, then it doesn't do the community a whole lot of good. So um, I definitely wanna take that opportunity as a quick, uh, quick uh, to put in a quick thank you to the work that we do at the, the Alice for Autism Foundation, just you know, helping to spread the word. We have, um, CADI programs, we have early intervention programs. We're definitely, you know, trying to extend a hand to the entire community and make these resources more available. But, um, you know, this, the other concern here is that New Jersey, in many ways, it's considered to be one of the epicenters for autism research and care. So it tells us that it's likely the case that access to these early intervention programs is even more scarce in other states and geographic regions. New Jersey is historically very good in the, the care that they're providing. It's also community. one of the densest populated states in the union. So, you know, yes. you don't really... What I guess I'm saying from that is that you have states out there that have large rural populations and large rural areas, but New Jersey is so jam-packed and everything like that, that it's, it's easier to get access to those services in that state than it is 
in states with large rural areas. Like I can only imagine the resources and the access that's available in the state of Wyoming because it is the least densely populated state. Now, there's a lot of uh, air, it's a lot of, uh, what did they call like uh, wide open country out there. So it's, it's not gonna be as easy as it is in New Jersey. Yeah, that's really well said. And while we're praising New Jersey here, I just want to say that my wife is from New Jersey. So obviously just one more great thing to come from that state. Uh, not saying I want to move there anytime. Uh, <laughs> I much prefer the weather in Florida, but yeah, just um, an interesting report here. And hopefully it does ser serve as a, a warning sign to many states around the country that, you know, we need as much initiative and as many resources as possible to try to get this, uh, get these programs accessible to so, as many families. So Nate, you were talking, Anna, I know that part of a good question for this article is about what we do at the foundation, but we should never gloss over the CADI program that we have. I believe yes. it stands for Collaborative Autism Diagnos Diagnosis and Intervention. And I think that what is very, very important isn't just the tireless work by our staff uh, for the program. Um, and also, you know, that we see individuals up to seven years of age, but that it's also a free program. So right. you're not based, you don't have to spend a dime to actually have this happen, to have kids come over and, you know, figure out what's going on with them and to, you know, get the right diagnosis, to get the right procedures and assessments and everything that is possible. And I think that that is definitely one of the great programs that we have at the foundation. Um, definitely. Yeah, yeah, thank you for elaborating on that. We, we've got to get the information out there. And also the point on our uh, caddy services, it, it should be considered that, you know, a large portion of these cases that don't receive intervention prior to 36 months, it could very well be because they haven't received a diagnosis yet and they just don't have the basic access to a pediatrician or a clinician who could, who could assist with that. And um, so that's another area that we have to focus on. All right, I'm now going to pass it on to my favorite co-host Merrick for his human interest stories. Okay, um, but before I start, um, I would also like to mention um, about one of our programs that we also do, which I guess can be slotted under early intervention also, um, our goals program, because what it is, is it's like our game on programs where we export our uh, you know, practices of our golf and fitness, and uh, yoga, I mean, golf and uh, tennis and 
to come fitness also, um, you know, to export those practices all over the world. Um, in a way, goals is like that, but with our clinical uh, studies and with our clinical uh, staff team. So it's, so it's actually exporting our practices in early intervention and our practices in, you know, any kind of clinical service and, you know, the people who come away with it then get to have that kind of knowledge. And if they feel like that our services are, you know, they follow a great rubric, then they can export those to wherever they may be, whether it's Italy, Brazil, you know, I think that that's also something very interesting, very important in regards to uh, what we do as a foundation regarding early intervention. But uh, I don't want to babble too much uh, because I am supposed to be the one to, uh, re to talk about my stories here. Um, so Thank now... You. Many listeners may remember in those moments in the past when I had spoken about being an only child and having no siblings. It does make this experience more interesting speaking to people who are a part of the sibling process, like Paul and Jesse Morris, Samantha and Ben Ells, uh, you know, those kinds of relationships. Uh, when I was born, I would constantly have febrile seizures, which usually would happen when there would be a rapid change in the temperature around me. Because of this, a lot of care was given to me because whenever I would fall into a seizure, it would look like I was dead. It even caused hysteria to one of my babysitters because of it. Also, shortly after I was born, my father suffered from Stills disease, which has a terrible impact on the person who suffers from it. These factors, a dual-income family, and the constant enigma of what I really was made it very hard to add a sibling to my family. But when I was growing up, I was told to embrace my cousins in a way that related to having siblings, and I have seven first cousins, male and female. I had thought before about what having a sibling would be like, someone who will probably still be there when I get to be very old, someone who will support me in dark times. Sometimes it can be hard. However, there can be sometimes friction between siblings, especially at a very young age, and it has allowed me a greater, closer relationship with my parents. The relationship that you may have heard from Paul and Jesse Morris is kind of like my relationship with my father, in that we are almost like brothers, <laughs> even though he's turning 67 and I am 36, we still have a great relationship. Um, and there's also less competition between me and any siblings. It just makes life easier and allows me in a strange way, greater independence, I feel. But I think that there are benefits to being an only child and benefits to also having a sibling. So, Nate, what is it like to have a sibling? Well, I'm happy that you mentioned some of the pros and the cons to having siblings. I think my favorite quote on siblings is that they're like branches of a tree and even though we grow in different directions we all come from the same roots and I would say that so first of all I have three sisters so I've won very few arguments throughout <laughs> my entire life especially growing up <laughs> um, <laughs> but I would say that 
the really cool thing about having siblings because you're more similar to them than anyone else in the world. And that's true genetically speaking. I've always felt like I'm very much on the same wavelength as my siblings. And when we communicate with each other, it's just easy and we understand each other, our intentions, sense of humor is even similar. And so I realized that I'm very lucky and very blessed to have those types, that type of relationship with my three sisters. Of course, it wasn't always smooth sailing, right? When you're growing up in the early years, it can be very rocky. There can be competition and fighting and tears, all that uh, fun stuff. But um, my three sisters are all adults now and they're amazing people. Um, so I'm, I would say the, the biggest pro is just having someone that you know can be a lifelong friend and will always understand you. And then the negatives to it uh, would probably be, especially as a middle child, you definitely don't receive as much attention from your parents. And uh, if you have some siblings that are a little bit more of troublemakers and maybe a little bit more deviant than you, then uh, chances are they might get uh, quite a bit more attention than you. <laughs> A follow-up question to that I would have is, since you were losing argument, since you were losing arguments with your sisters, did you ever think about joining the debate team so you can better your your skills at argumentation? <laughs> yeah, the thought definitely crossed my mind, Merrick, but I guess I was hesitant because, uh, you know, I had to learn... I would say losing the arguments ended up being a good thing for me because I learned a lot about compromise and I learned that sometimes even though you lose the argument, you win the war in the long term, right? By keeping another person uh, calm and happy uh, in the long term, you might actually be winning. So I, I, did, I did consider it. There was a time when I was younger I thought of becoming a lawyer as well. Uh, my grandfather was a very successful lawyer, but I don't think I have enough of those traits in me. <laughs> yeah. Um, it reminds me when you say lawyer, I'm thinking, oh yeah, I'm thinking of that old Three Stooges joke uh, about the law firm of Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. And it's basically D-E-W-E-Y um c-h-e-a-t-e-m and h-o-w-e and it's just i i just i don't know why it comes to my mind but it's just such a funny little joke hey, um, the joke makes but, sense maybe i would look like a stooge up on the the bench <laughs> oh great uh, this this program does not in any way uh, make any commentaries about lawyers in general. My father was one. Thank you so much. Yes. Um, so, Good disclaimer. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, my next story is about making friends with a child with autism. Because, you know, 
it's usually around this time when I put together stories about going back to school or, you know, what to do when your child starts school. But it's not just about entering the school building. It's knowing what you can do from there. And I think that it can be a challenge and a struggle for anyone, even someone without autism. That's my question after I read to you all what it is that I, that I did my research on. So the next story comes by way of a little cursory research on a subject that is very important for children to learn, especially those with autism. And that is making friends with others. Being able to make friends at school will help necessitate greater independence, create a larger support system, and allow recess time to be a little less awkward. What I found was another useful set of tips from the Marcus Autism Center called Helping Kids with Autism Make Friends. And I'd like to highlight a few of the tips that they mentioned. First of all, and most importantly, the concept of a friend can be difficult. Even when one is fully grown up, the nuances and distinctions between an acquaintance, a friend, a close friend, or even a best friend can be very complicated to navigate through. For starting out, it is good to keep the language simple. An example given from the website is, friends are nice to you and say things that make you feel better when you have a bad day. It's known that so many individuals with autism are visual learners, so enhancing the process with a social story, which contains pictures and words to model how to make a friend, would be very useful too. And to show the child is fully ready, practicing is also very important. Perhaps a child has a sibling or a cousin, maybe they can practice with you. There's also the question as to whether you can have a friend of yours be representative of the experience too. After all, children can learn well by a proper example. Once the child is ready to become friends, acknowledge the child's interests first and maybe have that become the next step in their process to making friends. There should be many programs available, including at the school, so the child can find people who share common interests. Or make sure that if the child is doing something at school that they really like and they notice someone who may also have the same interests, arts and crafts, for example, to make sure that the child doesn't let the social opportunity go by. Post the child in case they need any more preparations, and eventually things may fall into place. So, Nate, this is a two-parter. Any further tips you would like to share, and what were your experiences like making friends from an early age? I think this is a really well-written piece, and their point on finding common interests, you know, another person that has similar hobbies or interests to you, that's that's probably the best place to start when it comes to making friends. You know, it's, those are sort of the mo most elementary relationships that we have very early on in our lives. Our friends are really people who we just uh, enjoy doing activities with. And in many ways, this doesn't really change throughout life. There's usually some common ground that brings people together and especially for people with autism, you know, I think it's really important, whether it's a recreational activity like playing basketball or watching basketball, as we heard the Morris brothers speak about, or maybe it's attending a concert or, you know, doing artistic activities together. It's so important to have that common ground that's going to stimulate not just conversation, but also just a sense of togetherness as you do these activities. And so I would definitely start there. As far as the 
the autism community, you know, I think there's a really cool opportunity for um, individuals with autism to, to uh, have friends that are neurotypical and vice versa. You know, um, I think there's a lot that, that both demographics can learn from one another. And, you know, Merrick, I think about our friendship and um, how, how well we get along and, um, you know, how, how uh, much we're able to joke around together. And I think, you know, that dynamic, we saw it with the Morris brothers as, as well, um, can be really good for both parties. From my own standpoint, making friends from an early age, I would say that, you know, I, I want to quickly say that um, I, I moved around a lot as a, as a kid. I lived in six or seven different states. So that, that did make uh, making friends challenging because um, it felt like I was always moving around and uh, having to start over when it came to friendships. Like I was always the new person. So it, it was difficult at times, but, you know, I'm an adamant sports fan. I've been playing tennis and basketball since, you know, I could, I could walk basically. And, you know, I would say a good portion of my friends came from that common interest, which was playing sports. But, um, you know, I would say with making friends uh, in this, this holds true for, for adults as well, but just find people who, when you're done spending time with them, you feel, you feel positive emotions, right? As, as simple as that might sound, oftentimes, you know, I'm guilty of this too. We all have friends where, you know, we get done seeing them and, uh, you know, we can feel our our blood pressure rising and, you know, we feel kind of a tension in our shoulders, but it's very important for us to try to surround ourselves with the people that, you know, help us to feel better and help us to feel less stress. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, those positive environments are going to allow us to be as successful as we can be. You know, the, the people we surround ourselves with, it's very important. And I'm sorry to get a little off topic there, but just, you know, one consideration I'd like to mention. Okay. And for me, um, yeah, so, what about you, Mary? So I uh, supposedly at my earliest age, I actually had a friend with autism. Um, I did not, I don't even remember any of this. But this was like my first year, like I was like two or three or whatever. And then I came to uh, Baltimore County, Maryland. And I really didn't have any time or any place to make friends. I think that I was the odd duck. So um, if I wasn't being laughed at in class, there was like very little of a connection between me and anyone else, though I did have, though I didn't know that there were people very friendly with me at that point in my life. Um, the good thing is that when I came to Savannah Park, where I stayed for ten years, 
and I ended up having a teacher who understood me, a homeroom teacher, for the third and the fourth grade, and she would be very helpful with me. And it was through her example that I ended up befriending a few people there because they were also very, very nice too. And it was, uh, it was not too difficult to make friends for me. It's just that you just don't always know how these people will grow or what these people will turn into. And, you know, sometimes it makes you, you know, when, when I had a good friend in elementary school and he turned into a bully in middle school, uh, you know, it was an assertion that maybe it was my fault for leveraging, for basically overwhelming this person and for playing into the friendship bit a little bit too hard. But I, I don't really know, you know, was I being a little bit too excessive or was I being just right? And just somehow he found these two kids who were not nice either. And he just started acting out for whatever reason. And he's very, very different now from all of that. But I still remember that. And it's, it's always, you know, it's always it's sometimes confusing to understand how people will connect with you. Yeah. And what I found is that usually the people who are probably the worst behaved when I'm growing up with them, they end up turning into much more mature people or I end up befriending them or I have a much, much better relationship with them than I had in the past. I can say that about one of my cousins who... Uh, when I was growing up, he and I did not really get along real well. And now he's like one of the many different anchors in my life that I would consider to be, if he wasn't a cousin, he would still be a, a friend. And so it's, it's sometimes confusing. But I think as long as there are people there in the straight and narrow who you can always uh, rely upon as being friendly to you, you know, even with all the fog and everything, they can still be a torch or a candle in the innermost moments of darkness. Yeah, that's, that's good stuff, Mary. That's really well said. All right. So uh, before we go, we want to thank the foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners. And because of that, we will be seeing you again in September with some more coverage from us and the autistic community in general. So as we usually go, for... Crawling around, no.
knowledge in my head but my feet on the ground Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky, like a butterfly I wish that I could fly so high, oh like a butterfly I'll fly into the air so high, oh like a butterfly Like a bird, I was meant to soar I will fly through the sunlight and even when it pours You can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind In the future your eyes will light up To think that I was once a poor caterpillar Will grow up and take to the sky like a flock of butterflies I wish I could fly so high Oh like a butterfly I'll fly into the air I'm a butterfly